Avanti Centrai is an international best-selling author who blends history, science and suspense into pulse-pounding action thrillers. And she's here today talking about her latest book, Cleopatra's Vendetta. Born a goddess, Cleopatra died a prisoner, but the cobra's deadly kiss was just the beginning. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today on Binge Reading, Avanti talks about how she melds ancient history with contemporary politics, how history is told by the winners, and why she wants to restore Cleopatra's reputation as a world-changing woman. But before we get to that, just let's talk about our giveaway for this week, Sadie's Vow, book one in the Home at Last series, by myself, Jenny Wheeler, free this week. We're preparing for the launch of Susanna's Secret, book two in the series next month, so this gives you a chance to read book one before book two gets published. All the books can be read as standalone stories. The offer is limited to 50 copies and is for a limited time only, for one week or until all the copies are taken up. You'll find all the links for this episode, plus the links for the giveaway, in the show notes for this episode on thejoysofbingereading.com. And remember, if you enjoy what you hear, add a review of the show on your favourite podcast host so that others get to hear about us as well. But now, here's Avanti. Hello there, Avanti, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Hey, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast and recently got to one with Lee Goldberg, and I just couldn't be happier to be here with you today. Thank you so much. Look, you're a number one international best-selling author who blends history, science, and suspense into pulse-pounding action thrillers, rather similar to what Lee does. But today we're talking about your latest work, which is Cleopatra's Vendetta. It's going to be released later this month in the US, so we're right on the knocker in terms of talking about it as it comes out. It's a far-reaching adventure which links the ancient queen Cleopatra to very much up-to-date events that are happening in our own world right now. And I wondered for a start, is Cleopatra a figure that has fascinated you? Because you've got a tremendous amount of depth of understanding about the woman. You've done a lot of research on her. Oh, she's absolutely fascinating. One of the most powerful people in history. There's so much to be fascinated about her. And I just have researching her. Yeah, I can't wait to dive in and tell you a little bit more about what I learned. Fantastic. Look, your tagline for the book is, Born a goddess, Cleopatra died a prisoner, but the cobra's deadly kiss was just beginning, which is a great tagline. Your book does stretch from ancient times right through to the most up-to-date cyber stuff that's going on. And I wondered, I notice in other books too, you do that stretch of a thousand years from way, way back to very contemporary. Do you like to see that 
clash of cultures. Oh, absolutely. That stretch of history, in this case with Cleopatra, it's about 2,000 years. And I find that uh, not only does history tend to repeat itself, but I think we can learn a lot from history. I tend to be a big picture person with a number of fascinations, including things like psychology and spirituality, history, and those things influence my writing. And it's really neat to be able to dig into a particular historical person like Alexander the Great from some of my earlier works or Cleopatra. And there's a number of great biographies about Cleopatra that I was able to leverage and learn from. But yes, absolutely. I really enjoy that big picture of how are of the day being influenced by things that happened thousands of years ago. And I guess there is the other end of the scale that those people still have the same human reactions that we do as well. So that makes them understandable to us, even if the society is very different. It's true. The time periods in history and how Cleopatra may or may not have influenced what we're facing today. It was a little bit challenging to figure out how to work all that into the book. But once it started to come together, I felt like it just really flowed. The story revolves around a think tank special ops leader called Timothy Stryker and his wife, Angie, who's a pretty dynamic, self-made woman in her own right. They're taking a much-needed Italian holiday. Their marriage is a little bit frayed around the edges, and they're taking this holiday, attending a wedding with friends. But that little break comes to a shocking end when Angie and their daughter are kidnapped, and then we enter a whole other territory about who the kidnappers are, what their motives are. Tell us about the writing process for this book. I saw somewhere you mentioned that it was a bit different for you to write this one from some of the others you've done. It was a little bit different. There's a number of conflicts throughout the story, and Tim and Angie's conflict is pretty interesting. So they haven't been seeing eye to eye because they lost their infant son. And when that happened, Angie turned to alcohol to deal with her grieving, which Timothy didn't really care for because his parents, there's quite the backstory with Timothy and alcohol. His father ended up killing his mother in a drunken rage. And so I started with that conflict and spread out. When I write, I really like to have some deep interpersonal conflict with some of the main characters, as well as a global conflict. In this case, Timothy, as part of the Army Futures Command, is assigned to track down some assassinations that are going on. And then that also needs to tie in with something historical. And in this case, Cleopatra, because the theme of the book, so you asked about my writing process and what I like to do is I like to start with um, a, a theme because I find that everything hangs from that theme. And in this case, the theme is truth and finding truth. And you'll notice the history of propaganda in the story, which was also fun to research. But I'm an outliner. I start to think about, in this case, it was a whole new set of characters for me. And so I started to think about the characters and what their conflict might be. And then I outlined it. And then usually after I outline it, I go back and I fine tune it here and fine tune it there. And once I get the outline where I like it with the appropriate twists, because, you know, you're writing a thriller, it's got to have some really cool twists in there. So once I get all that in there, then I start actually writing a couple of chapters a day. So that was the process for this one. Your books have been likened to people like James Rollins, Steve Berry, Dan Brown, and Clive Cussler. So 
that will give people a bit of an idea of where they'd sit on a bookshelf in a bookshop. But are they also authors that you like to read? I do really like to read those guys. I actually just finished a book by Steve Berry. It was called The Columbus Affair. And not only did it have the usual international suspense and a bit of a treasure hunt, but it also uh, posited some interesting theories about Christopher Columbus and who he might have been and some of the artifacts that he might have been hiding. So it was really neat. I find the Clive Cussler stories that uh, were co-written with Robin Bursell to be quite well done. And James Rollins just has a wonderful way of mixing a science in with his novels. And so they're all, to more or less degree, smart thrillers like mine for people who intrigue history, science, and mystery all wrapped up with the shooting guns, the smart people shooting guns. So yes, I do really enjoy reading all other books. You did mention about the theme of truth. And one of the aspects of the story is the threat of deep fake information online to the threat it might offer to society. And you only have to look at your own society in the States at the moment to see what some people's versions of truth is and how far away from other people's views they might be. There's a huge chasm opening up there. Tell us about your fears for deep fake. What are the threats of deep fake? to our society and tell us a bit about it because probably most of us hardly even know what it's doing or how it exists. Yeah, these are great questions, Jenny. So for readers who haven't come across the term yet, deep fake is a way of using artificial intelligence to create videos that look real but are not. And I think that part of why this is so disturbing to me is that I believe that humans believe our eyes more so than we believe our ears, we believe our senses. And a lot of times in news, people can repeat this lie or that lie, and it might sink in. But when we see a video of something like January 6th, George Floyd, or the war in Ukraine, or when we see these things, they affect us on this deep level. And with the advent of the internet over the last... 30 years, it's been a blessing and a curse, right? I think you and I are both old enough to remember life before the internet and how we didn't have a lot of this divisiveness. We still had propaganda and Cleopatra's Vendetta talks about how Cleopatra is as old as she is. And actually that's a big part of why she lost the war that she did and why she ended up killing herself. So propaganda has been with us for thousands of years, but what's different, I feel, is that social media and the internet make it so that we're very mind-based. And so my hope is that people will stop and think a little bit about some of the things that they've learned or been told and that they will research for themselves and find out what they want to believe. Pick your topic. There's so much information out there these days that it can be overwhelming. And so my fear with deep fake technology is that people will see things that really aren't true and they will jump to conclusions. And the flip side of that is that law enforcement is working to detect deep fakes. And I actually see things on Twitter where, oh, such and such a video that showed is a deep fake. But people have seen it. So it's going to be, I think, the new frontier of disinformation. And hopefully at some point people will realize that they need to 
research things before they come to conclusions about them. So in your book, there's a conspiracy group, an international conspiracy group called the Sons of Adam, and they are pro- promoting some deep fake videos. Now, theoretically, you could have a deep fake video that made it look as if somebody as important as the president of the United States was saying something, and you could fake it. You could make it look as if he actually said that those words came out of his mouth, couldn't you? You could. Yeah, and that's yeah. what the Sons of Adam are doing in the book. Now, it's a pretty scary international conspiracy, and you make it very clear that they're a figment of your imagination. They don't really exist. But give us a take on some of the social themes and religious concerns that group has and the threat to the world that they might represent if such a body did exist. Yeah, that's a little bit tricky because one of the main questions in the book is why are people knocking off world leaders like tin cans at a hillbilly family reunion? (laughs) So I think if we go too much into the why this group is assassinating people and kidnapping women, I think we'd have to have a, a pretty huge spoiler alert. Why I chose them and their particular motives, it's got to do with the theme, right? They're are spreading lies and have been for thousands of years. And it does tie in with socioeconomic and religious themes. And it fit the story. It just really fit the story. Yeah. 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 Now, you mentioned about that propaganda thing, and I hadn't really realized because I didn't know much about Cleopatra, but it seems as if her legacy in terms of history has been affected by the fact that the conqueror won, Octavius, one and and then he had a very long reign in which to basically destroy her reputation. So tell us about your research into Cleopatra and what was the most interesting or surprising thing that you learned about her from all your work? Oh boy. So this is super fun. When I first started thinking about using Cleopatra in the story, I didn't know much about her. I had been influenced by the love affairs with Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, and that was really about all I knew other than that she was queen of Egypt. And what I learned was fascinating. To start with, she ruled Alexandria and all of Egypt single-handedly, right? So she was truly the queen of Egypt. So she had coins made in her image. She acted as ruler of the army of the navy. At this time, Egypt was one of the wealthiest countries in the world, right? So not only did she rule a kingdom, but it was a very wealthy kingdom that was the most advanced kingdom for its time. So they had things like They had moving conveyor belts and coin-operated vending machines. This was in 30 BC, right? So not only is she ruling this amazing nation, but she herself is super cool. So she spoke nine languages. She was the first Potomac ruler to speak Egyptian. She was also a bit of a prankster. And so the whole book is based on a prank that she's pulled, which is fictional, uh, against her arch enemy, Octavian. But it's true that she was a prankster. She and uh, Mark Antony used to dress in disguise and go around to the different bars 
in Alexandria and not let people know who they were, which I think is just a riot. And she was over the top, too. So Mark Anthony summoned her and she was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not just going to jump through hoops just because you're summoning me. So she played total hard to get before she met Mark Anthony for the first time. And when she did meet him, she threw a party where rose petals (laughs) were knee deep. She brought in knee deep rose petals to meet this guy. So she was larger than life and was indeed lovers with two of the most powerful men at the time and ended up having an enemy in Octavian who was yet another one of the most powerful men at the time. And it's so, you know, the Rome and Alexandria at the time, Rome was like a Western backwater. Alexandria was like New York. Rome didn't know how to even track time. So one of the things that Julius Caesar did after he got with her and was hanging out in Egypt, he was like, oh, you guys have this cool 12-month calendar thing. So I'm going to adopt this calendar and name July after myself. The history that happened at the time between them, it's pretty fascinating. And it turned out that Octavian was able to defeat her because propaganda. So he started distributing leaflets around town. He had statues of her and Mark Anthony saying that she was basically a whore and evil and their eyes bleed. They had this civil war going on. And so Octavian ended up getting more people to his side because he made Cleopatra look bad. And the historians think that's why Octavian was able to defeat the two of them in the big naval battle. And then the next summer in August, he went over and invaded Alexandria. And at that point, Cleopatra and Mark Antony, no, no allies left, no recourse. And so they both ended up killing themselves. Fascinating, fascinating people. Now tell me, was she as beautiful as Elizabeth Taylor? Historians think she might have actually had a big nose. They So they think that her beauty was perhaps not classic in the sense of drop-dead, gorgeous, classic beauty, but her nose was a little bit big. Some of the coins that they have found show her with a hooked nose, but it sounds like her personality was just big. She just had this big personality and was charming and witty and funny and to work her way into the hearts of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, probably through her wit and cunning and smarts, just as much as how much she may have been beautiful. I was thinking about that as I was reading the story, because it's almost like a sexist thing that she got the guys just because she was sexy. And it discounts all the other things about her, doesn't it? It does. And I think that's part of what Octavian did for the next 40 years. So he ruled, after he defeated the two of them, he ruled for another 40-some years, which is a really long time. So he had plenty of time to make her look bad, to denigrate her intelligence and make it sound like she was just a slutty whore that seduced these Um, and he tore down her statues, I think, that destroyed her past. So we are at a little bit of a loss to know exactly what her influence was at the time, because 40 years to make her look bad. Yes. Turning from the specific books to a little bit wider look at your career, because we are starting to come to the end of our time. You were an IT expert in Silicon Valley before you turned to fiction writing. What made you make that change? I had always wanted to be an author from the 
know, about the time mom taught me to tie my shoes, read, and I always knew I wanted to be an author. And when I hit 50, I realized, oh my gosh, you know what? Time is a wasting. And if I don't get on this now, I might not get that opportunity this lifetime. And, and so I decided to finally write the book I'd been dreaming about for decades. Actually, that's, that raises another interesting issue because your first book in the Ban Ops series you might regard it as an instant bestseller because it went, it did become a Barnes and Noble bestseller, etc. But I think you probably would agree that there was a heck of a lot of work that went into that instant success in quotes. Tell us a bit about that background. Oh, a heck of a lot of work. Absolutely. <laughs> so I started writing that book in 2013 and it was published in 2019. Yeah. And I did very little in my free time except outline the book run the outline by some industry experts, write the book, multiple editors, publishers. It takes a really long time to get a book out there. For your readers, this is about the joy of binge reading. And there are three books available in that series for people who want to binge their way through three books. They're a lot of fun. Yes. And the first one was called Lost Power, I think, wasn't it? That's right. Van Ops, The Lost Power. The first book is an origin story between a woman who is a computer app designer, and she and her brother, an engineer and a Marine, get sucked into the world of intrigue and covert ops, trying to find Alexander the Great's mysterious Egyptian before the Russians do. And then after that book, they end up joining Van Ops. So the first one is their origin story, because I was fascinated. I'm like, how does somebody get sucked into becoming a covert operative? How could that happen? Yeah. Now, I also saw that your dad had a military background, and I wondered if that had influenced you with this interest, really, in secret ops and things. Had that had any influence? Definitely. He never talked a whole lot about his time. He was in military intelligence in the Korean War and didn't ah. speak much about it, but he read Clive Cussler. So his choice of entertainment definitely influenced me. If there was one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you would credit as being the, quote, secret of your success, what would that be? I think it's got to be persistence, Jenny. You just... yeah. yeah. For me, it uh, didn't get the first agent. I didn't get the first publisher. It's just persistence and belief in yourself, right? So for me, I had to believe that I had some talent and had to believe that I could be successful. And when that belief was challenged, I just doubled down on it and say, nope, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing this because I enjoy it and, and other people enjoy it a lot as well. Yeah, that's great. We will now turn to Avanti as reader. What do you like to read? And are there things you'd like to recommend to other listeners? So we talked a little bit earlier about James Rollins, Steve Berry, Dan Brown. Those guys are all great. Andy McDermott, J.F. Penn, David Woods. But I think some of one of my favorites is Greg Hurwitz and his Orphan X series. So it's not in this action-adventure but it does have that smart aspect where he's got a character who is is trying to find his own morality and find his own humanity. And I think that I share that in common. My characters and uh, Greg Hurwitz's characters share some of that. So, yeah, I would highly recommend Hurwitz's Orphan X series. That's great. We're having Joanna Penn on in a couple of weeks. So I have been ah. reading the most recent of the arcane books just in the last 
few weeks and she does a great job both with the nonfiction and the fiction. She does. Yes. Have you followed her advice as a writer yourself? To some extent, yes. Yes, she's full advice for anybody that's a new writer. I definitely recommend you check out her books, her podcasts. All of her advice is spot on. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if you were doing it all over again now, is there anything that you would change? And if so, what would it be? I think I wouldn't put quite so much of my marketing effort behind that first book. I was just so excited to have a publishing deal, a million copy bestseller right out of the gate. And I think I put a little bit too much marketing into that one before I had book two in the series, Solstice Shadows, and book three in the series, Doomsday Medallion. And now we've got Cleopatra's Vendetta. I think that's what I would tell my younger self is this is a long career and it's really helpful when you're doing marketing to have a backlist or like the joy of been reading, right? Readers love to find a book and then go on and read more things. And so I think that would be what I would change. Gosh, a million copies of the first book, though, that's fantastic. But people do have a bit of a short memory these days, don't they? So they want that instant gratification. Yeah, and just to be clear, I wanted a million copies of that first book. I still oh. haven't quite sold that a millionth copy. But yeah, people don't necessarily like to wait a year for the next book to come out. They somebody that they really like, and they want to go through and read three, four, five, six, seven, seven of those books. Yeah. That's totally it. When we were growing up, it was normal to expect to wait at least a year for the next book. It was part of the whole culture, whereas these days it just isn't like that. That's partly the reason that I chose that name, Binge Reading, because we have been so influenced by our viewing habits. And actually that does just raise another little Cleopatra question. I don't know if, how many Cleopatra-type movies there have been, but have you looked at any of the Cleopatra movies and is there any that you think of worth the viewing time? Not so much. I have heard that Gal Gadot is going to do a biopic on Cleopatra. And so I'm really hopeful that gets made. I would recommend a book, Cleopatra, A Life by Stacey Schiff. That was the biography I leaned on most heavily. And one of the fun things I like to do at the end of my books is separate fact from fiction. And so there's some in there, but Stacey Schiff's A Life is a great source for people who you just want to really dive in and learn all about Cleopatra. Well, that's wonderful. Do you like to communicate with your readers and where can they find you online? love to communicate with my readers. Nothing makes my day quite having a reader say, oh my gosh, I was having, I got one of these letters the other day where somebody was having an issue with their pancreas and we're in the hospital and she book helped me make it through. And that just warms my heart. That's why I like to read. And vanops.net redirects to my avantisentre.com because my name is a little bit hard for people to remember. So people can go to vanops.net. They can go to the contact me page. They can shoot me an email. They can sign up for my newsletter. There's also links to all my social media there on the contact part of my vanops.net page. And if they sign up for my newsletter, they get the first six chapters of The Lost Power for free. That's great. Look, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk. Thank you, Jenny. Really appreciate it. Bye now. Bye. On Binge Reading Next Week, Douglas Skelton's Where Demons Hide, a Scottish thriller series with a supernatural edge featuring crime reporter Rebecca Connolly. Rebecca's scepticism is challenged after a body is found on a lonely moor in the centre of a pentagram. Something scared Noala Flaherty 
to death. Was she killed by supernatural means? Or is there a more down-to-earth explanation? That's next week on Binge Reading. Remember, if you enjoy what you hear, add a review for the show on your favourite podcast host. Others will hear about us too. That's it for today. See you next week and happy reading.